Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here today on a gentle autumn morning at White Moss Car Park between Grasmere and Rydalwater with author, illustrator and our guide for today's walk, Mark Richards. How do, David? It's great to be back again. We always have this wonderful moment at the beginning of a walk with such great sense of anticipation. We do, Mark, and today's is a very special episode uh, for me personally. I'll start with a gentle anecdote, if I may be allowed. (laughs) Uh, And it is this. One of my passions is traditional music, and for many years there was a legendary music session that took place at a venue called Shap Bothy. Now, Shap Bothy, you may be aware, on the road between Shap and Sedba, if you go over on the on the top there, there's a little electricity substation. I know it. There's a spot. Do a long walk into the far eastern fells from there. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. That's the one. Lonely, lonely place. But it was for many years owned by singer and banjo player Bill Lloyd who some listeners to Country Stride may know already, very established musician in Cumbrian music circles and he had this session that went on on the nights of full moons, so you would turn up and there'd be good old sing-alongs and a, a few uh, a few drinks consumed I would imagine and it was absolutely fabulous and I got to know at that point uh, Bill and what I didn't know about Bill was that Bill has this amazing past logging trees using heavy horses in the woodlands of Cumbria. How fascinating. And he's just published a book about this called One Horsepower. It's about this history of coming to the Lake District, learning totally anew this skill, which is pulling out these mighty old oak trees and larches and this, that, the other, using a horse very rarely happens anymore and he was joining this industry really at the end of the golden days of doing this of course so that's what we're talking about today mark we're talking about heavy horses and about the relationship between a man and his horse and about these wonderful cumbria woodlands that you and i have spent a lot of time walking in but perhaps haven't thought about how they are as they are and the kind of people like bill who have shaped them over the years. It should be a, a revelationary for our listeners, and certainly will be for me. Let's go and take our first steps on this country stride and go and meet Bill Lloyd. What a lovely, lovely morning. Ever so quiet, hardly a breath of wind. Uh, I'm in the woodlands between Grasmere and Rydal Water, and there's lots of people here, inevitably. It's a Sunday, which is unusual for us to be out. I'm in the company of Bill Lloyd. And Bill, this is a very special day for me. I've never met you before, and this should be really interesting today. You've brought us to this spot. Well, I brought you here because I've just published a book called One Horsepower, mm-hmm. and um, it's about me working in uh, the forests and woods in the Lake District. We started in 1978, a long time ago, and I did about seven years in the wood with a big horse called Ginger. And uh, we'd been going for about a year, 
and we suddenly got a big job from the National Park, Lake District National Park, which is to pull oak logs out of this wood just up the road there is Penny Rock Wood. Mm-hmm. It's right by the river, um, it flows out of Grasmere into Rydal. And uh, next to Penny Rock Wood, there's a big field, which is between the wood and the car park, and that's where we are now. Mm-hmm. And we call this Ginger's Field, because my big horse, my workhorse, was called Ginger. So here we are um, in Ginger's Field at um, White Moss. Fabulous. Interesting, Penny Wood, that's got an interesting origin in the name, because they raised money to build the road. Is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. You see, after 40 years, I now find out what's going on. Yeah, it, was okay. a, it was a way of raising money because the road otherwise went over the top. It did, on the little back road that comes down by Dry Close in Grasmere. That's Absolutely. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's history everywhere. Excellent. So, so you've chosen a short walk for us today to explore your story. Uh, where are we going? Well, we started in Ginger's Field and then we walked through the wood itself, Penny Rock, which is mature oak woodland. I worked with Alison, my wife, who's here with us. I worked a big uh, Clydesdale Cross draft horse, and Alison worked a fell pony, and we worked together in that wood for quite a while. So we're going to go through there, up to the rickety bridge, as we call it. It's not a rickety bridge now, and that's the one that crosses over the, the beck. And immediately to your right there is Deerbolt's Wood, which overlooks Grasmere, and we thinned that, and that belonged to the National Trust. And then up above, on the top of Red Bank, is High Close. We had the old Victorian stables there for a while and we worked Red Bank. Oh, well, that sounds like a really interesting background there, Bill. Uh, I think we'll have a little bit of a stroll now and um, explore many of those points that you've raised. Listen to the rothy, just there, dancing beside us. Uh, It means the trout, rothy, the red one. We're in a bit of a glade. It's a really charming spot. Now, Bill... The story we want to explore today is how you got into draft horses, beginning in Hebden Bridge, and especially in County you had. Well, in 1976, uh, I was working for an organisation called the Arvon Foundation, which is a, a kind of apprenticeship, residential apprenticeship scheme for writers. The house was called Lumbank. It belonged to the poet Ted Hughes, and uh, Alice and I were directors in the centre. And we were surrounded by writers and we spent two years immersed in literature and we were introduced to a lot of poets and writers and I was first introduced to the American beat poets Jack Kerouac and Gary Snyder were very influential and in the course of running the work at the centre we had a a heavy friend a sponsor of the centre who was a man called Havelock Hudson and he was the chairman of Lloyd's of London which is the biggest insurance broker in the world And he was a very powerful man. He had the ear of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he dined with the great and the good. And he was our sponsor. He was probably paying my wages. And uh, he came to a council meeting one day and uh, we cooked dinner for him. And after dinner, we had a bit of a conversation. The first whispers of awareness about the dangers of climate change were just beginning to ripple around particular parts of the social spectrum and the the writers were on it they knew what was going on peak oil was a big issue the focus of environmental awareness in the 70s was energy and uh, the fact that the oil would run out anyway in this conversation with Havelock Hudson we were at the time in the middle of the three-day week the rubbish was piling up in the streets the dead were not being buried industrial relations economic trouble and Hudson said to me in the course of the conversation If this is not sorted out within three weeks, this country is going to be bankrupt. We will never recover. 
we will have so much debt that we'll never be able to pay it back. And as it happens, while we were talking, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, was arranging the biggest loan in their history to bail out the United Kingdom economy because we were in such deep trouble. Now, this was like a trigger for me because I was aware of the beat poets and their embracing of nature and working up in the high forests, in the mountains. They worked as fire lookouts while writing their poetry. And I was also aware of the environmental trouble that we were in. There was a book called A Blueprint for Survival, which was very influential. And I decided that when I finished at the Alvin Foundation, I would work with heavy horses. And one reason I did that was because I'd been born and raised on a farm in the Pennines near Rochdale. And my dad had had heavy draft horses, and I used to work heavy horses. I'd sit on the back of a horse chain harrowing when I was about 10 years old. My dad then kept fell ponies, Cumbrian fell ponies. So how do you define a, a heavy horse, Bill? Well, heavy horses are they're the big, powerful draft horses. In this country, there are three primary beads. There's the Shire, mostly in the south of England, the Clydesdale, mostly out of Scotland and the north of England, and the Suffolk. The Suffolks are not doing so well now, but the Shire and the Clydesdale are still reasonably strong. In the Europe, you have your Belgians and your Percherons and your Ardennes. They're big, big horses. They can weigh a ton. For the last thousand years, they have been the primary source of energy for the whole of the Western economy. They did the ploughing, they did all the farm work, they built the railways. The great city of New York was built with horsepower. That was much of it was built before the even steam engines. The horses were our primary source of traction and energy before oil. An alternative source of energy was what I was looking for because we all thought at that time, we really believed the oil was going to run out. We thought the economy might collapse. So I was really, really quite primed for this. So I went to Wales, spent um, a month or two with Satish Kumar and his family on a little small holding in Wales, which is right next to John Seymour's farm at Fahonley, Fahonley Ishaf, which was um, where John Seymour put a lot of his ideas into practice for his very popular books, The Fat of the Land and Self-Sufficiency. So those guys influenced me. And then I went and apprenticed myself to a man called Jeff Morton, who was the king of the heavy horses. He had 25 shire horses in East Yorkshire. And he just farmed growing corn, mostly wheat and barley, with big shires. And I trained with him until I had a bit of an idea for most of the farm jobs. And it was Jeff Morton who said, the only way you can make a living now is in forestry. So we've come through a little gap into Penny Rock Wood, mature oak wood, handsome site. Uh, and behind us, the steep slopes of Lufrig. And in terms of your story, we're just about to meet your number one horse. But before that, there's a journey to be made. Well, yes, we, once we decided that ideally we'd like to be working, I didn't want to do nine to five in an office anymore, and the Arvon Foundation was very intense work. In the back of our minds, we knew what we wanted to do. And so in the spring of 77, we borrowed one of my dad's fell ponies and we hitched up a tub trap, a governor's cart, and we set off for about two weeks touring the north of England, horse-drawn. And that really was what committed us to our path because we learned that a good horse would die for you if you asked it to. You would never even have to whip it or treat it. You'd just tell it to go on and it will go on. And we suddenly realised that the horse was this extraordinary energy source which was sustainable, it bred its own replacements, it could live on sunlight and grass, wonderful to work with. So we, we had this great trip, we went up Wharfdale, 
Wensleydale, over the plain of York, through the North Yorkshire Moors, and back all via Bailed and Keithley, back to Rosendale. And by the end of that trip, that was it. We knew what we had to do. So we gave our notice, and um, we, as it happened, that spring, we went on a trip to Appleby Fair, looking to buy a horse, our first big move. And we didn't find a horse, but we met some friends of ours, uh, Tony Ashford and Viv Lewis, who had a, were staying at a, the farm at Lylebeck, and um, started looking around for forestry work. We still didn't have a horse. And we soon found a company called Pulford Forestry. They had their office at Windfell, which is now the Centre Park's tourist development. And they had a little office in there and it was surrounded by coniferous plantations. And we went to see them asking for work, any work, because I needed to learn how to handle a chainsaw. I needed to learn about thinning. I knew nothing about forestry, nothing whatsoever. And in the course of the conversation, I told him I really wanted to be a horseman. He said, oh, well, that's a funny coincidence. He said, we have a timber horse down in Wales and um, nobody wants to work him. We can't find anybody to work him and uh, he's going to the knacker next week. Would you like to buy him? Sure. So I thought, well, uh, yes. <laughs> um, so we put in a, an offer at knacker price, knowing that he wouldn't get more and uh, he accepted it. So they brought the horse up and um, we first encountered Ginger in a huge field in what is now Centre Parks. And it was a moment, I think I describe it as a moment of bliss. Oh, how lovely. There's romance in this. It was partly romantic because he was a fine, he was a fine horse, he was a great horse. It was partly just the magnificence of the animal, but it was also, it was an enormous satisfaction. We decided two years before that this is what we wanted to do. And after two years, there we were, just the two of us in this massive field, a perfect day with a perfect horse. It was like a dream that actually came into reality. And the whole of our story was a bit like that. You set out to do something that seems impossible, and if you just hang in there, we were very lucky. I won't deny that. We were really lucky. But we also, we didn't give up. We just got completely focused, and we ended up where we wanted to be. Now, you said you had very little training in forestry and things, but you did have a relationship with Newton Rigg Agricultural College. I did. Well, as it happens, Newton Rigg, we were only 10 to 12 miles away, and I knew, found out that they had a good library with a very good forestry section. And in fact, they were very influential in our life in various ways because I spent quite a lot of time reading up because they still have a lot of old books about horse extraction. All the Forestry Commission publications from the 50s and 60s, horses were still common, the tractors hadn't taken over. I learned first all about measurement and, and different ways of stacking timber, different ways of getting it out. I used a model of how to build a sledge, which came out of the Newton Rigg Library, um, and built my own sledge for getting timber out. Did you find that there was a particular type of person who worked in forests? Well, when we, were, when we started, we were a bit unusual. We were like ideological hippies, basically. We'd come from a different world altogether. Conservation, climate change, all those things. But the great majority of the people that we encountered, the Forestry Commission had a very enlightened policy from the 30s and 40s onwards of um, small holdings. So whenever they decided to plant, they would build half a dozen small holdings with cottages and a proper woodshed and all the stuff you need to run a small holding and a small livestock enterprise as part of the forest enterprise. And the idea was that the, the, the farming people would work in the forest and the forest people would work on the farms. They'd trained, they'd been through forest school and uh, they were local lads pretty much uh, all. The contractors, the independent contractors, they tended to be different. They tended to be um, either ambitious forest workers who decided to go on their own 
or they were coming in from outside a bit like us, but they'd be buying tractors and big machines wanting to make a lot of money very fast. We had something to prove. We knew very well that we were never going to be rich on this. It was hand-to-mouth for years, literally hand-to-mouth. Very often we couldn't pay the bills at the end of the month. We eventually, we, we managed, but we weren't setting out to make a lot of money. We were setting out to prove a point. And um, we failed to prove it because the machines wiped us off the board, in effect. But it took us seven years to find out. So when you have access to these machines, why would you, if you're at the National Trust, want specifically a horse logger to be involved in the process? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, the most important reason, I think, is to do with selective thinning. A horse can move among the trees and a machine can't do quite the same. It's not as flexible. And you, you do selective thinning. It's an old way of doing forestry. They don't do it so much now, but in traditional forestry, silviculture... You plant your trees very intensively, lots of trees, and you go through it after 10, 12 years, and you take out the weak ones and the dead ones and leave the dominant trees, and that's the first thinning. You can't get a big harvester in to do that. You do that with a man and a chainsaw. Once you get into second and third thinnings, a horse is ideal because you can work among the trees. Now, what they tend to do now is the machines take everything. They don't do any thinning at all. They'll plant it. 30 years later, whatever it is, they'll fell the whole lot because it, you lose money on your first thinnings and you lose money on your second thinnings and you usually lose money on your third thinnings. You only make money on the clear fell at the end. But these days, the demand for saw logs has faded. Most of the saw logs in this country are now imported. Almost all the timber that's produced in commercial conifer plantations goes for processing. It's turned into wood pulp, wood chip, MDF, toilet paper. They just chew up the whole tree, break down the molecules and reformulate the molecules into whatever product they want. They don't need quality timber. Whereas when we were starting... And for the National Trust, they wanted amenity woods. They wanted mixed-age species of young and old. They didn't want the clear fell, which looks horrible. So the horse can work in woods that you want to look beautiful or that you want to produce high-quality saw logs because you take out everything. This is what we're doing here. I think actually where we are now, when I was here, there were twice as many trees, possibly three times as many trees, 40 years ago. Now there are one or two dominant trees... This is ready to come out. You see, the canopy is nearly closed. Another three or four years, and this canopy will be closed and it'll be ready for thinning again. They're socially distanced now. As they are. Socially distanced trees. This is exactly it. So the horse is good for that. The other point is, and this was a matter of pride to the horseman, the horse can go where no machine would even dare to go. Some of these steep, rocky places, there we've got a bog. If a machine went in there, it would get stuck. You're not going to, never going to get a machine in there, but I could get round it, I could walk round it. Just around the corner, there's some steep, rocky crags, and some of these trees are growing on steep, rocky crags. A horse can get them off. A tractor could hardly even get there among the trees, and on the very steep slopes, it might take you 20 minutes to walk up with the, with the horse, but when you're there, you can work your way down surprisingly steep slopes. Fascinating, Bill. It's a lovely wood. We'll have a little bit more of a wander through this and head towards the lake, uh, Grasmere Lake. We're in a very special spot here. We're by the road, but uh, this is still native woodland we're in the midst of. But it was very special to you. Penny Rock Wood here was a bit of a breakthrough with us, really, because... We started with Joss Rawlings in Greystoke. We were thinning Setka spruce. 
in commercial plantations, very black and dark and very miserable environment, but that is commercial forestry. Now, the process of harvesting timber, basically three parts to it. There's the felling, where you're cutting the tree and laying it on the ground and cutting the branches off. There's the extraction, which is dragging it to the roadside. And there's the conversion, where you're converting a tree into a product. And those products, when we were working, it'd be pit props for the mines, which are still going. What they call TBM, Thames Board Mills, was a big factory in Workington. Uh, wood pulp, Bowwater's wood pulp, uh, fence posts and saw logs. And they were the main specifications for what we had to get out. So in the early days, I was doing everything. I was felling the wood, laying it down, cutting the branches off, dragging it out with a horse, converting it into a product and then stacking it for the wagon to take away. It was very dangerous, strictly, being a logman. And unpleasant, I'd imagine. It was dangerous. There's falling trees, there's rocks, there's bogs. If something breaks, the horse might take off if something upsets him. Very unusual, but it's always a possibility. You have to be careful. So there are dangers. It's also, it's not particularly romantic in the sense of, it's not like a, a nature calendar. The chainsaws are dirty and smelly and they produce a lot of fumes and they're very dangerous. I put a chainsaw under my foot once, which is another hospital job. Even though I was wearing protective gear, I had all the gear, it just got in the gap between the instep and the bottom of my trousers. You're working with very heavy loads, heavy weights, moving very fast. If you're pulling a, a big log around a tree, the end of that tree could move, it could move 20, 30 feet in a second very, very fast, break your legs if, if you're in the wrong place. So you have to be very careful about working out the tensions before you start. A wind blow is very dangerous environment. When a tree blows over in the wind, the plate, the root plate as it's called, stands vertically up while the tree trunk is lying on the ground. When you cut the trunk off, that plate will fall over. And sometimes it doesn't fall over straight away, it'll fall over a year later. And if there's somebody standing underneath it at the time, they don't come out, they're dead. So you have to be careful. The tensions and the pressures, it's like any other dangerous job, but, it, but it's not wholly romantic. And there is also this process of brashing. Well, brashing, in a commercial plantation where they're planting 1,500 trees to the acre or something, after three or four years, it is a completely impenetrable wall. You cannot get two feet into that wood. But you need to get in because you need to see which are the dominant trees, which are the good trees, and what has to come out. So you, you do what's called brashing. You have a saw, which is a curved saw on the end of a little stick, and you work in and you, you pull... You pull downwards and you cut all these side branches off to height of about six feet on all the trees so you can then move among the whole crop or the forester can move in and mark which trees are to come out. Now that's a dirty, miserable job. You're working in the dark. It's very strenuous. In the winter, the snow is falling on you down your neck. The sawdust is falling down your neck. You skin your knuckles. It's very tiring and the rate of pay is pitiful. And um, Alison did it for a while and after, after about... I think about about two weeks, you'd earn 30 quid or something, so oh, forget it. So we, we didn't do any more of that. Nowadays, you see, of course, where they don't do selective thinning, if it's clear fell, you don't need to do any brushing because you want the molecules in the branches just as much as the molecules in the, in the tree trunk. You've got this trauma of the environment, but you've also got this bond and relationship with a horse still ongoing, haven't you? Well, you do, and the main way to avoid danger with a horse is to have a good horse that knows its job, and then you work to voice commands. So in other words, you tell the horse what to do. You're not relying on reins. 
and the, the basic commands they're very similar in different parts of the country. As it happens, I found that Yorkshire horses have a different language than Welsh horses. In Yorkshire, you'd say arve up and G back. For go left and go right would be arve up and G back, whereas Ginger wouldn't recognise arve up at all. And in fact, those commands are not really used in forestry. They're more agricultural uh, for big open fields. In forestry, the basic commands are stop, go and steady. Um, and that's really pretty much all you need. So you didn't do the Arbuck and the Arbuck? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Well, he didn't understand it. He wouldn't. His <laughs> accent was wrong. <laughs> We've come out of Penny Rockwood, over a little, lovely little bridge, and there's a lot of bustle of people here on the outflow of Grasmere Lake with silver howl striking the ahead of us and the mists sweeping over Tarn Crag, Gibson Knot. Old Scarf has got the most cloud on it. Some reflections in the water, ducks and there's a gull down there. People just soaking in a gorgeous setting. And we'll go back to your story, Bill. You've now moved into Cumbria. Where did you move to first? We'd been in a caravan in Greystoke and we moved the caravan to High Park, which is above Fletcher's Wood in Little Langdale. And there was a little clearing in the wood and it was like a scene out of Disney. There was a wonderful big Scots pine tree with squirrels running up and down it. There was a little clearing with a tinkling waterfall and a pond and dragonflies and every bog plant you can imagine, bog myrtle and asphodels and sundews. It was like, it was really wonderful. And that was when we began to tune in to the particular beauty of the lakes. And it was perhaps best Example, on the first morning, we got there with our caravan, we got it into the clearing, unpacked, and it was a glorious summer's evening, and we had our food and an open fire, looking at the sun go down, and we decided to sleep outside. So we dragged our mattress outside, and in the morning we woke up to the dawn chorus, the bird song, and Weatherlam in a morning sunlight. And it, I'll never forget that, it's like it's printed on my brain. It was just a moment like the moment when we met Ginger. Our story is full of these little moments when you think, ah, this is what we wanted. Suddenly, we've got the horse, we've got jobs, we've got work, we know where we're going, we've got our caravan, we know what we're doing, and suddenly it all turned very beautiful, which was, you know, it's great, still hard work, still hard graft, still not known money, still a struggle, but the landscape was inspiring and that kept us going for years. Well, you move now to where we are, more or less, to Grasby, above Dove Cottage. And so from being in a forestry environment, suddenly you're in a vibrant place with people. Well, what happened there, I was working for the National Trust at Yew Tree Tarn, on the road from Coniston to Langdale, and um, a chap came to visit us because we were right by the roadside, and that was John Williams, who was a National Park Forestry Officer. He owned Penny Rock Wood, and it was he who brought us to Penny Rock Wood. And, but we had to have somewhere to live because commuting from Little Langdale to Grasby, you've got to go over Red Bank, which is steep and icy in the winter, not good. You've got to feed the horse twice a day, whether you're working or not. So um, we moved and, and lived at a place called Dry Close, just above Grasmere. That was another big change for us because for a year and a half, some we'd been stuck away out in the sticks in little isolated farmhouses, no television, we listened to the radio, but we never bought newspapers. The whole punk revolution was happening and we had no idea about it, really. And we came to a Grasmere in Ambleside and found... It was a really lively scene, a cultural scene of people our own age. I mean, for example, 
because of my Arvon Foundation background, and I was writing quite a bit at that time, poetry, none of it any good. And I went into Holdsworth Bookshop because I heard there was a new Gary Snyder book had come out, and I asked Fred Holdsworth for a Gary Snyder book, and he immediately became, oh, wow, he loves Gary Snyder. We got into conversation, and then we would always go in there for coffee, and we'd chat about this and chat about that, and he introduced us to people, and we found this lively scene. Also, Alison took a job. The very first vegetarian restaurant, one of the very first in the country, I believe, although you could check up on that. There was one in London, Cranks, I think, but Harvest Vegetarian Restaurant. Alison took a job there, and she worked as a waitress there, and um, that was run by Derek Hook and his partner Jill, and they lived at Allen Bank. And there was quite a community at Allen Bank of a new generation, a new thinking was just coming in, conservation, environment, lots of alternative therapies, alternative technologies, lots of alternative people. And Grasby was a bit of a hangout for that, Allen Bank. And Derek Hook, who then went on to set up Zeffirelli's, putting on great music concerts and interesting films. And it was just a melting pot of new ideology. And there was a great excitement in the air. And of course, we felt as if we were on the front line of that because we'd given up our straight job. We were in the wood, in a caravan, working with horses, reading, writing, doing a bit of journalism. We felt very much there was a new wave and we were riding it. It's intriguing, the places that you moved to. And of course, there was that one bothy on Lowesforty you lived. In fact, it was after we'd been in Penny Rock. Um, the National Trust wanted to keep us on and we were now working for the National Park and they didn't want to lose us. So it often be more work, but that was in West Cumbria. And I went to work in Lowesforty Wood. If you go in, into the wood a mile or so... Is that Homewood? Homewood, exactly, Homewood. There's an old, it's an old fish hatchery and it belonged to the National Trust and it was a bit of a dark and mysterious bothy. But I lived in there for quite a while, for one summer. I'd come home at weekends and um, that was a, a, another key place for me because long, lonely nights in the wood, no neighbour for a mile and a half or something, no shop for five or ten miles, certainly no cinemas or anything of the kind. That was where I got into um, practising my music instrument. So I played the whistle night after night after night and that was where I learned most of my tunes. Funnily enough, the tunes, I'm still playing some of those tunes. I haven't done any, any horsework for 40 years, but the tunes I've still got in my head. Many of our listeners will know you most of all because of your music. You brought out of your bag your bagpipes. Have you a tune that you would like to share with us? I will, yes. I should say, first of all, these are Spanish bagpipes. These are from Galicia in northwest Spain. Galician pipes, gaita as they call them. And I play with a band called the Cumbria Gaita Band. We're the only gaita band in the country and we're based here in Cumbria. And this is a tune which I wrote for a friend of mine, a man called Billy Allway. And um, he died, unfortunately, too soon. And I went, played the pipes at his funeral and I wrote this funeral. So this is Billy Allway's tune. I call it the Pennine Lament. <laughs>
fabulous walking beside the river, isn't it? It's a lovely mix of your penny rock wood to one side and then the bracken slopes, which are now all russet coloured, going up onto Luffrig Fell. Now we're in a very characterful spot, but of course in your time in Cumbria and the Lake District, you've encountered quite a few characters as well. That's true, yes. Um, there's too many stories to tell. We'll never get through them all. But one of my mainstays when I was working around the Central Lakes was a man called John Watson, known as Watto. He'd been a horseman all his life and he came out of retirement to help me out, really. Didn't like to take wages when things were tight. He just liked to have a day out. He really helped me a tremendous amount. He had an enormous knowledge. Unfortunately, he was alcoholic and he lost his licence more than once. And um, there's a famous story of he took the tractor down to the pub once because he, he didn't have a car, he'd been banned from driving. So he, he took the tractor down to the pub and um, his wife, Mary, got on her bike and strapped a sledgehammer to the crossbar of the bike, cycled down to the pub and smashed the tractor up so that he couldn't drive home and kill somebody. Not because it wasn't vindictive towards John, he just didn't want him on the road. After a couple of years for the trust, our first child came along and uh, we planned to give up because we didn't want to raise a baby, very hand-to-mouth existence in a caravan. And the trust, National Trust were that keen to keep us. They said, oh, uh, we'll find you a cottage if you'll stay on. I said, oh, yes, please. So we moved to Bankhead Cottage near Sorry, and it was left to the trust by Beatrix Potter. John used to work for Beatrix Potter. Watto, he used to work for Beatrix Potter. Now, in her latter years, Beatrix Potter was mildly eccentric. She wore funny clothes, and she had a certain amount of facial hair. And the children all thought she was a witch. And um, John uh, got into big trouble because um, he arrived in the uh, Beatrix Potter's yard one morning and she came out to give the orders as to what was to happen. And there was a Beesom broom leaning up against the back door of Hilltop Farm. And John looked at it and said, Oh, Mrs. Ellis, I see you've got a new bike. (laughs) Now, as it happens, there's another good story about Beatrix Potter which I have to tell you. So, thanks to John Watson, we went along to the sale when Jeff Story died, uh, the, he had a farm sale. All his gear was sold. And in the sale um, were Beatrix Potter's gelding irons. The gelding irons are used for castrating horses. Not what you think of about Beatrix Potter at all. Lots of little fluffy animals and foxes and all that. Anyway, we bought Beatrix Potter's gelding irons because I don't think anybody else knew what they were. And they're now hanging by my fireside. <laughs> So you, you are now well on into your career in forestry, but the whole business is changing, and so really the end is in sight for you. Yes, globalisation was taking hold. I noticed it first with rustic poles. The last 10 feet of a tall tree um, is too small to do anything with commercially in processing, but it makes a perfect rustic pole. I have a two and a half inch top going down to about three quarters of an inch, 10 foot long, perfect for rustic poles. I go all over the north of England selling them to garden centres. Suddenly they started buying them from China by the container load at less than a quarter of the price that I was selling them for. So I was losing £100 a week because the market had gone. And the big one though was um, Bowaters had a factory in uh, Barrow where they made Andrex toilet paper. And I got a job latterly when we were really well into it. I was working two woodcutters, two horses, and somebody roused about converting. The price had fallen and fallen and fallen. We were back down to about 11 to 12 pounds a tonne, which is where I'd started seven years before. And when the driver came to pick up the first load, I said, uh, where are you going? And I assumed it was going to Barrow. So I said, where are you going? He said, no, I'm taking it to Hull. I said, what, Bowlwaters haven't got a factory in Hull? He said, no, no, it goes on a ship to Norway where they turn it into paper pulp and they send the paper pulp back to Hull and he picks it up and takes it to the factory in Barrow. Now, I was working horses to try and 
prove that it was an alternative to machines and fossil fuels and mechanization and all that. And I found that I was working my backside off and had a whole team working and I was struggling to pay the bills because I was the last one to get paid. Everybody else had to be paid. And my wood was being taken by truck to hull across the ocean in a boat, through a factory, back across the ocean, back on the truck, back to Bullwater to end up two miles from where it started to make toilet paper. Absolutely staggering. And that, that was it. I thought, hang on, why, why am I doing this? Now, it's happened. I had no choice but to keep on. But when old Ginger died, um, it was the time to stop. Very poignant, very sad moment, the loss of Ginger. How did you say goodbye? Well, a very difficult time, really, because it brought a lot of the reality to the surface. Nothing like a death to waken you up. Um, I was working at Pullwyke, which is near Bray. They had stables there. I was working in woods locally. And um, I suddenly noticed uh, his eyes went a bit yellow and his urine began to smell. I thought, oh, this is not right. So I called the vet and the vet prescribed uh, liver failure, possibly cancer. Uh, so he couldn't save him. So I then had to make a very difficult choice what to do with him. But eventually he had to go to the knacker and he had to go probably for meat, possibly for animal food. The fact of the matter, that's the reality, that is how it is. They say if you're a farmer, if you work with livestock, you have to live with dead stock. And it was troublesome to me because I wanted him a better way to go, but there was no better way. It's a big dilemma as to what you do with an old horse. You can't bury him. I buried little animals, I buried dogs and cats, but I couldn't bury a big draft horse away three quarters of a ton. He had to go somewhere and uh, I didn't want to kill him myself partly because I didn't have the skill and I probably didn't have the heart if it came to it. So I sent for the main horseman dealer in Cumbria, um, gave him a call, he came and took him away in a wagon. So I said goodbye to him, he was on his feet when I said goodbye to him and I don't know what happened to him after that and that was where the guilt was because I had an attachment to this. It was a real attachment, I didn't want to see him go. He looked after me, I looked after him. He'd had an extra seven years of life. I'd had probably the best seven years of my life. So it was, it was a hard moment. So this is a very poignant time for you, but there is a sort of a sense of closure in the last activities that you had with Ginger. Well, it's true. The very last pull was um, of lodgepole pine. And Alice and I had always wanted to build a teepee from our days as hippies in West Wales. And as it happened, we were working with a group, an affinity group, we called it, environmental activists, uh, peace campaigners, and um, we decided that we needed a group project and that group project was going to be to build an Indian teepee and um, for that we needed poles and the preferred timber for a teepee is something called the lodgepole pine for building Indian lodges and there happened to be a plantation of lodgepole pine 100 yards from my stable at Pullwike so I talked to the forestry officer who I knew said I think that plantation needs thinning yes it does I said I'll do it for nothing he said let me take the timber all right so the last job that Ginger did was to pull out poles for a 24 foot Indian teepee which is a magnificent structure and we built the teepee there were about 16 18 of us a lot of children four or five couples and um, had great times in it story it really does resonate that there is a continuity a feeling that your horse life and your future life intertwined there. I think we'll head back through the woods here along this woodland way and back over a bridge and get back to the car park. There's fabulous stories there, Bill. Thank you. When we're coming into a lovely little glade beside the River Rawthin, it gives us an opportunity 
to have a few reflections on the journey thus far. And Bill, one horsepower is in some ways a lament to the final days of a past way of life. What have we lost as a society by moving from horse to machine? It's not altogether over because there are more horses working in the wood now than there were when I was doing it, quite a lot more. Now, there's various reasons for that. One is a growing awareness of climate change and the problems with carbon and fossil fuels. And in particular, as a new ideology among a lot of young people who are worried for their future, as we were, and they say, well, we're not having this. Let's see what we can do with low-impact, sustainable energy instead of the machines. And the skills are being kept alive. Uh, George and Kevin Reed and Simon Lenehan and George Newton a little bit in the South Lakes are all working horses fairly regularly. It is still there. We have lost, however, quite a lot, I think, with the machines. One thing we've lost is the social policy of the Forest Commission, which revolved around small holdings next to the woods that they planted. And when they were founded in 1919, their social policy was very clear. They wanted to repopulate the uplands and they reckoned that forestry would provide more job opportunities than sheep farming. And uh, it was a major boost to the economy. It also was a way that people could get a start in farming. If you haven't got heavy capital, very hard to get a start in farming. But if you get a Forestry Commission small holding and do a bit of work in the wood, then you get your 30, 40 acres, whatever it was. It wasn't big, but it was enough to get a start, run a few cows, run a few sheep, and learn about the basics. It was a way of young people coming out of college and getting a start on the land and doing it for themselves, that's all gone. I think there were between one and 2,000 Forestry Commission small holdings at the peak in the late 40s, early 50s. By 1970, that had dwindled to a few hundred, and there's now only half a dozen, I think. I don't know how many, but they're very, very few. So we've lost that. And those small holdings were central to the rural economy of small villages. They kept the pub going, they kept the shop going, they kept the school going. So by doing away when the machines came in, you didn't need the woodmen. You've worked in all sorts of woodlands in the Lake District. Uh, Have you any particular favourites? Well, I think probably my favourite is uh, Holmwood, round Lowswater. Uh, I spent a lot of time there, spent two full seasons there. In the the bottom of Holmwood, um, it's mostly broadleaf trees, a lot of oak and birch and beech. And in the early spring, when the leaves are just coming through, it's very, very delicate and beautiful tracery of, of very light green leaves and this fabulous landscape and the, the beautiful Lulzwater Lake. I learned a song there. It's called I Wasn't Born to Follow, and it's by the birds. I'd rather wander through the forest where the trees have leaves of prisms that break the light in colours that no one knows the names of. And I learned that in Homewood, and uh, it was like that. a very, very beautiful place. You were away with the birds there. Exactly, yeah. You're writing the book, Bill. The world of the woodland is simply different from the world of machines, engines, computers, politics. It's another universe. Can you quantify that otherness? Well, there's a phrase... I don't think I use this in the book, actually. I've come across it since, which is... um, I think it's an old Chinese saying, time spent in the wood is never wasted. It's a kind of refuge the noise of the wind in the trees, the beauty of it that I was talking about before, the fact that it's a maze, you can go into this dark world. When you're in the wood, you are part of something much bigger. You're part of this living creature. It's like one thing, a big wood, and you are part of it, so you can lose yourself. Out in the world, in the city, in your sitting room, watching the television, on your telephone, in front of a computer, 
You're playing by somebody else's rules. Your behavior, your mind, what you think about is forced down a channel by somebody else. Somebody else is making the rules. In the wood, nature is making the rules. You have to be careful, it can be dangerous. Even if you're not working, it can be dangerous. But you, you can feel that you're not being constrained. You feel free, you can feel free in the wood. Our listeners love the quickfire questions and uh, I've got a, a several here for you, Bill. And have you got a, a very first Lakeland memory? Well, that's very clear as it happens. In 1959, my dad turned over from running uh, sheep and cattle. He kept a few of each, but he, he mostly moved on to fell ponies. And he came up to the Lake District to visit Sarge Noble, uh, who was one of the main fell pony breeders. And we drove up in a little, it was a Willis Jeep. We drove all the way from Rosendale up to Shap, um, Brampton, and um, went to see Sarge. And my dad did a deal for a couple of mares. And while we were there, a little Lakeland Terrier popped its head out of the barn. Up high up in the barn was one of these ventilation slots. And, and the, the Terrier popped its head out of there and it was yap, 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 yapping the whole time we were in the yard. It never stopped. <laughs> and um, my mother or my father and took a fancy to it. And when you do a deal in the Lake District, you usually get a, ba- a bit of luck. You pay the money and the man you're giving the money to will give you something back for luck. And when they were doing the deal, my dad said, I'll, I'll pay you a price, but I want that terrier for luck. And he got it. And that terrier was called Midge. And I grew up with that terrier. Uh, have you a favourite fell? Well, I don't do a lot of climbing up fells these days. Um, seven years climbing up and down hills day in, day out. Kind of took the pleasure away from doing it for recreation. But nevertheless, just a couple of weeks ago, um, I'd been ill for a little while. And in part of my recovery, I decided to, to climb up a hill. And I climbed up Black Coombe. And I really love that. I love Black Coombe. You've got a view of Isle of Man, Scotland. You can see Wales. You can see the whole of the wind farm now. So, um, <laughs> no, but Black Coombe, I like Black Coombe. It's a good hill, absolutely. Have you a favourite view? That's an easy one as well. It just happens to be that same place, that clearing in the wood at the top end of Little Langdale, above Skellith Bridge, where we camped with our caravan and slept outside the first night under the stars and woke up in the morning to see Weatherlam in this gorgeous pink of the dawn light. And uh, that I'll never forget that. Have you got a favourite pub? Favourite pub? That would be Ruskin's Bar in Kendall. Um, they have the regular informal folk music sessions there, very good sessions. I've been going to those sessions for 15 years and uh, they're still one of the, the major musical highlights of Kendall. If you were to take one book, a Cumbrian book, on a desertanum, which one would it be? I think the book I read most of all is a long poem um, by a writer called Basil Bunting. He wasn't a Cumbrian, he was from the northeast, but his, his masterpiece is a poem called Brig Flats. Now, Brig Flats is about a mile or two south of Sedba, which I think is just in Cumbria now. I think there's some... It is, it is indeed, but once yeah. upon a time it was Yorkshire, wasn't it? Anyway, well, yeah. anyway, it is in Cumbria now, so we can get away with it. Brig Flats is a wonderful poem. It's about 700 lines, and um, I say it's his masterpiece. It's all about the landscape and the history and uh, the whole theme of the poem. I've read it many, many times. I must have read it a hundred times and listened to it a hundred times. Um, it's, it's a wonderful poem, and it, it has a lot in it about what makes the North different from the rest of the country. What would be your perfect Lakeland day? Oh, well, I've had it. I've had my perfect Lakeland day. Um, we got up early before sunrise, down to the shore on Windermere, and went out char fishing with the fleet. 
and the fleet was about a dozen char boats and 20, 20 men. It tended to be men only. And uh, I was an honorary guest because I was a, a, a banjo player and a singer, and they liked that. As the dawn's rising, you're out, it's, it's very, very peaceful and quiet, but also quite exciting when you get fish. And then we'd stop for breakfast, coffee and bacon sandwiches on an island somewhere, and then we'd go fishing again till lunch when there'd be a big barbecue and quite a lot of beer. And then we'd go out fishing again and come in about three or four o'clock, and the catch, all the catch was put in one place. Great disgrace if you keep one for yourself. It all went into the pot. And then the admiral of the fleet, who changed each day, would go around all the pubs and they would offer the charfish that day to the hotels. Because char is a great delicacy. Restaurants could charge a lot of money for it. Fresh caught that day. So there'd be a kitty of a, oh, maybe a couple of hundred pounds from the day's fishing. And then we'd go to the Queen's Arms Hotel and drink it all. It all had to be drunk. And there was a lot of singing. And there was a beautiful, beautiful moment when the best fish of the day were put on a plate, a lovely old spode plate and beautifully dressed with garnish. They were passed around the room of all the singers and musicians and you'd hear oohs and ahs at the beauty of these fish. <laughs> and then, then they go away and then we carry on drinking. And uh, I do remember that particular night I got home and I have no idea how I got home. <laughs> when the time comes and a few friends gather to remember you in a place that means something special to you, where in Lakeland might that be? That would be at Staveley Village Hall. That's Staveley in Cartmill, near Newby Bridge. It's a lovely little village hall, and it's right next to the church where my parents are buried. And it's about 100 yards away from Chapel House Wood, which is the scene of an annual meeting of the Woodland Pioneers. A lot of young people coming to learn craft skills, and I go and play the banjo around the fire for them. And I thinned that wood with my horse, Ginger, 40 years ago and uh, it's a bit of a special place to me. So um, if I had a memorial, it would be um, a little party in the Stavely Village Hall. Well, Bill, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you very much, and thank you for taking the trouble. Thank you. Journey's end, back at White Moss Car Park after our wander and chat with Bill. Tough old work that, Mark, but what a great story. Multi-led, isn't it, in a way? This kind of awareness of environmental change, this pivotal meeting that happened with his boss of Lloyds of London that brings him up to discover a whole new world into the woods, you yes. know, and... He's lived in some fabulous locations in the lakes. That little bothy by Lowswater, I've walked <laughs> past it loads of times. No, somebody lived there for many, many years. Yeah, it's fascinating because you know, I mentioned to Bill, uh, today happens to be my wife and I's 45th wedding anniversary. And we say congratulations to Mark <laughs> and uh, to poor long-suffering Helen. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we had our honeymoon at Lowswater, Scale Hill Hotel, uh, ah. And interesting, I, and chatting to Billy, he said his wife Alison used to work in the Scale Hill Hotel, and I did know that uh, Joyce Grenfell used to stay there, and she said, "Oh yes, he looked, uh, used to look after Joyce." So it's funny how you make these unusual links, and this is what you find in life. Small world, Cumbria, and we have here 
on work experience for the second time we have my other half's little boy Max. Hello Max. Hello. <laughs> what have you learnt today from Bill? Logging and stuff. How hard it is to make a living from your hands effectively. He started, as Mark said, basically from nowhere and then he's come and he's made an amazing living out of it. Yeah, I mean, it is true, isn't it? To have just learned all of these things one after the other. It's not something I could do, but no, there we go. Why? But of course, it boiled down to that circumstances and the changes in the world just meant that actually that kind of life had an end point. Although, as he pointed out at the end, that actually there is a revival in that. Mm. And, and we felt that, heard that from James Rebanks, yeah. and that, that farmers and young farmers have got the fire in their belly. So people are really realising that going back to nature is a future because the mechanical age doesn't answer all the questions of our relationship with nature. And a definite first for Country Stride, bagpipes alongside Grassmere. And it was very, very lovely, wasn't it? Because there was a whole load of people there and everybody stopped. And here in the pipes over the lake, uh, what a magic moment. And I do think, you know, somebody who's, who's watched Bill and his music for many years, I think a bit of magic is brought into the world by Bill Lloyd. He gave us an, a lament, but I felt it was a poignant statement of our musical connection with a wonderful landscape. Well, you are celebrating your wedding anniversary, Mark. Country Stride also a little bit of a, an anniversary. This is number 40. Uh, for 39 previous episodes, go to www.countrystride.co.uk. We are on social. On Facebook and Twitter at Country Stride one Do message us. We love hearing from you. Next episodes, Mark, what have we got lined up? Our next episode will be Dr Kerry Andrews, who will be coming to talk to us about Harriet Martineau, which is quite local to where we are now in the Ambleside area. I know there was talk about going up Helm Crag, there was talking about Shap and the postman's route. Plenty to do as the nights draw in and as the weather gets a bit cooler and presumably wilder than today, but... For now, for today, and from Penny Rock Woodlands that Bill Lloyd worked with his draft horse ginger, we're saying goodbye for now. Goodbye, and thank you, Max, for joining us. Thank you.